Galatians 2, what I'm preaching on this morning. And just to recap a bit as to why we're preaching through the book of Galatians, it's something that we've chosen to do as a church, um, partly because it's good to pre- uh, preach systematically through Scripture, and we honour the Bible as our utmost cornerstone of truth. But also, there was a word brought in one of our conferences, and someone said that people will grasp and memorise the book of Galatians, and out of that there will emerge a new movement of grace. And several of us, well, several, quite a few of us who were there and who heard that, were almost felt the, yeah, me, I, I, I'm having that, I, I want that. And it was more than just a, that sounds a nice idea. Um, yeah, we should, we should do that. But I think there was something that God spoke to us in our spirits and prompted. So we always want to be listening to God in terms of what he wants to be saying and we want our preaching to be informed by, prophetically by what God has prompted us. And so we turned to the book of Galatians, which is an amazing book that talks about the grace of Christ and the freedom that we have in the gospel. And this is following on from last week's sermons from Mark and from Donna. Um, you can set some of the groundwork and I'm going to take on the next chapter. Uh, Paul Bungay is preaching on the kind of later half of this chapter this evening. So come along to hear more of that. That'll be great as well. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 5 of what I'm looking at this morning. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You can look this morning at how do we protect the wonderful truth of the gospel and make sure that that is presented in its full glory. So, recapping just a couple of the bits that uh, Mark covered in his introduction last week and a bit of an overview of Galatians. It's just starting off with the very simple premise that it's always about Jesus and nothing else. That you need nothing else for your salvation, that nothing else makes you right with Christ. That Jesus and nothing else is everything. And that the converse of that is that if you start adding things into that, If you start to say, well, you need Jesus as well and something else in order for your salvation. Jesus and something else to make you right with God. That Christian maturity is about Jesus and something else. Then you end up with nothing. And because Paul in this, in Galatians, he's responding partly to a false gospel that was being preached. That some lies that were trying to infiltrate Christianity at the time. um, Which almost went along with this kind of idea that you had grace... And obeying the works of the law gave you favour with God. And Paul comes against this idea completely, consistently in the book of Galatians. He goes against it because, actual fact, if you have grace and works of the law, you do not have grace. As soon as you add in anything else saying, yeah, yeah, you've got complete grace, freedom, it doesn't depend on you. Oh, apart from this bit, that bit depends on you. No, you've nullified it completely. And you end up with legalism which is this miserable rule-following 
which makes people feel that they have to earn their righteousness, earn their way into God, earn their place in the kingdom. And that nullifies grace completely. And so Paul's central message is this, grace through Christ and nothing else equals favour with God. That is the truth of the gospel that he is proclaiming. And have to remember that part of Galatians is a response to that false gospel which we've heard, which was trying to kind of infiltrate this legalistic, works-orientated, have-to-do-something-to-make-myself-right, and trying to get that into the gospel. So I'm going to kind of take this through almost verse by verse, and we'll look through the passage together. It says, Then after 14 years, verse 1, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. So this, verse 1 of Galatians 2 follows on from chapter 1. I know this sounds a very deep theological exposition here, but it is important to bear that in mind. In in Galatians chapter 1, Paul has spent the time establishing his credentials as an apostle, as someone who was called personally by Jesus, and of establishing the gospel that he set out and of saying very clearly that this gospel that he was preaching of salvation by grace was not something that he received from man or was passed on by human wisdom, that this was direct revelation from Jesus. And so when he says, then after 14 years, he's probably talking 14 years after his salvation, which was probably around 33 AD. And he took a long Barnabas with him when he went up Jerusalem. Uh, Barnabas uh, was uh, a a Levite, i.e. a Jew, who had converted to Christianity. And then Titus, who was a Gentile believer, who Paul had a lot of trust in. He acted as a delegate when Paul needed to send someone to Corinth. Has his own book of the Bible named after him. That's that's an important character there in Titus. And so he goes to Jerusalem... Uh, where he's going to meet with some of the other apostles. Why does he go? He says, I went in response to a revelation, a meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Which sounds quite dramatic, doesn't it? Sounds, Sounds very vulnerable. Am I doing all this in vain? Do you guys ever have that? Do you ever get that sudden, sudden thought, that sudden wave of panic of, ah, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> Is all of this for nothing? Does anyone ever? No. Okay, good. I'm glad you guys are more secure than I am and, and, and that you never get that. Oh, thank you. There's one honest person there. I commend you uh, for your honesty there. Everyone else of you, repent of your pride. All right? Okay. So, um, and then, you know, you, you think, ah, and then you chat to some other people, calm down, get some perspective, and it all seems to make sense again. I think that, that, that's not really how Paul was thinking at this point. He, he hadn't had a sudden crisis of identity, lost his faith, or started to doubt his message. Okay? He wasn't doubting the truth of what he'd been doing for the last 14 years. Right? He'd estab- he spent the whole of chapter 1 establishing the fact that he is of utmost confidence in, his go- in the gospel that he is preaching and of his calling through Jesus. He wouldn't have written that in chapter 1 to then suddenly go, oh, and actually I doubted all of it in chapter 2. No, the reason he says after 14 years is clearly to show that there was a lengthy period of time um, from when he was first called uh, by Jesus, converted and given his gospel, and he preached that for a lengthy period of time 
before there was human input into that. Does that make sense? That he's clearly establishing more and more that this is another part of his argument, that the gospel was not something just made up by humans, that this was given by divine revelation. And so it wasn't that he was just going to uh, kind of seek human approval of his, of his gospel. The passage does not say, after 14 years, I started to have some really severe doubts, so I went to go and ask Peter, look, is this true? And that's not what he was doing. So it was a revelation, it says, in, in response to a revelation, God prompted him to go to Jerusalem and God prompted him to seek out this meeting and he presented the gospel he was preaching to the other apostles primarily to check that he was building the same thing that they were. Okay? Not, guys, I need to check if this is true. It's actually, do we have unity here? Are we on the same page? Are we all pulling in the same direction? This message that we are proclaiming across you know, as much of the civilized world as we can get to, this new revelation that Jesus has brought and given to us, are we all going the same way here? Are we building consistently or are we pulling things apart? That's what he wants to establish. If he was, pre- cause if he was preaching salvation by grace alone... And then he turns up and discovers that the other apostles have decided, no, we've decided that uh, even Gentile converts need to obey the law, and we're going to start to put that message out around. Paul might well have thought, oh, actually some of what I'm building has been in vain, because this is going to get broken down and overcome by legalism. Whereas, fortunately, that wasn't the case. It's likely that the meeting that Paul describes here is the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Um, there's some, there's some kind of debate whether not all scholars agree absolutely on that point, but it seems a credible reading that the meeting that Paul describes here is Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, which have a look through at some point. But there's very clear agreement. Um, and if I read from that, this is what the other uh, apostles agree with Paul. God who know, Acts 15, God who knows the heart shows that he accepted them talk about the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. And that's the agreement that they came to in Acts 15. So it's clear that The revelation of the gospel of grace and that this could be preached widespread, that it is by grace alone that you are saved, apart from the law, and that you don't need to be obeying rules and regulations can be saved. That At the very outset of Christianity, this was not just a Pauline doctrine, that this was widely agreed amongst the early church. And however we look at this, we do see that Paul had complete confidence in his gospel as a revelation from God. And he didn't feel the need to have this validated by anyone else. Yet he also engaged in discussion with other Christians about it, about the gospel he was preaching, and he modelled mutual submission at that point to make sure that there was unity. And that's really powerful. Because he, he would have been worried. He would have been worried that legalism was starting to creep in. He could have been worried that there were false doctrines elsewhere. And he could have just said, look, 
Okay, I don't need to engage with anyone else. I'm not going to discuss that. I don't need any other Christians. I don't need other people because I've heard directly from Jesus. And he could have just gone it alone. Because he had heard directly from Jesus. That was true. He didn't need kind of earthly recognition or validation. No, he chose, partly he was obedient to God's prompting, who said, you know, go meet with the others at Jerusalem. But he placed himself alongside other respected believers to work it out and to establish that unity. And that is wisdom. You've got to beware anyone that says that they have revelation from God and that they don't need any reference to anyone else. Someone says, I've heard from God and the opinions of all other Christians do not matter. Ultimately, anyone that says that they're not open to human correction is quite likely to be a lunatic. Right? If you follow someone like that, someone that says, I hear only from Jesus and no one else gets any say in my life or my doctrine, follow someone like that, you will end up living in a commune and wearing a tinfoil hat. All right? Uh, because that only ever leads one way, and that's to a cult. All right? That's what happens when you have one dominant person who believes that they only, only they have direct revelation from Jesus and that they are not open to human discussion, correction, and input. Right? Placing yourself in the company of brothers and sisters in Christ and submitting to one another is the healthy model of Christianity. We encourage one another, we build one another's faith, and we benefit from different giftings. And we don't have just one person who has the final say in what God is saying. Because that introduces hierarchy right from the get-go. Do you understand that? Okay. If you've got one person who says, no, I'm not answerable to anyone else, you have automatically, whatever else you try and put in place, you end up with a church or a denomination or an organization or a cult, whichever you fancy joining, um, that is ultimately a pyramid structure where you've got one person at the top. And then you've got hierarchy and that person is somehow superior to everyone else. Whereas what we model and what Paul encourages in his other letters, so in Ephesians, when he says, submit to one another. Because it's mutual submission. Not submit just to me, because I'm the great apostle. Submit to one another. This is something that we work really hard at as a church, of encouraging mutual submission according to gifting. It's recognizing different giftings in different areas. So we do believe in clear leadership. Okay? But we have, and we have structures in place to help us to operate. Because we do have to be organized as a growing church. Okay? This is not saying, no structure, no nothing, everyone just do exactly your own thing, because then we're not all pulling together and, and fulfilling the calling that God has put on us as a church. But it's not a pyramid scheme where we end up with one person uh, just solely answering to God. I'll give you an illustration of how that works. We have uh, the board of directors, or we use the term directors and elders interchangeably. So I'm one of them. We've got six others. And we don't have one person who has the casting or the deciding vote. We don't have that because we choose to work that out amongst each other. We submit to one another. And as directors, we submit to other people in the church around us. And ultimately, we all submit 
to the wider church. That's how that works. Because people will ask, okay, who are the Eastgate directors to um, outside of Eastgate? And that is with the attitude that you have to have someone above. Make sense? You've got to have, and ultimately it's then, well, who are they accountable to? And who are they accountable to? And ultimately you get to the top and you get the Pope. Um, uh, if you go with that structure. <laughs> that's, that's how that works. And that is not to uh, uh, as a direct criticism of uh, Catholic brothers and sisters. We want to work alongside them. They are you know, millions of Catholic believers worldwide who are an amazing blessing and who love Jesus wholeheartedly. They're saying that's not the model of leadership that we are embracing and going with because we feel that there is something else that Scripture prompts us to and that the healthy model of this is mutual submission to one another. And that should be a positive thing. When we talk about who are we accountable to, sometimes that feels like a negative thing, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Nick, who are you accountable to? Almost as if a, that's the attitude, right, when you trip up or when you blow it or when you go like that, who do you go and tell that to? Who do you confess your sins to? No. What we need to be accountable to is encouraging one another on. Are you making the most of your giftings? Are you going further in your relationship with Jesus? Are you giving your life wholeheartedly to the gospel? Are you serving within the church? Are you giving everything for the, whole, for the kingdom of God? Are you growing in your character? Are you increasing in your faith? That's the kind of accountability that we will want for all of us. Not of a lording it over or of a fearful mentality, but is, are we holding each other mutually accountable that we are living a wholehearted and fulfilled life as the free people of Christ? That's what we're going for. Okay? So wisdom means having good people around you to help with your life, with your doctrine, with decisions, and to be encouraging you to just to go further. Are you stepping out of your comfort zones? Are you doing things that you never would have dreamed of? Of having people going, yeah, go on, you can do it. That's great accountability. Saying, oh, wow, you're doing things that you never before would have done. So Paul met with the apostles. Um, and he had this discussion, and it's apparent from other verses in Galatians and also elsewhere in Scripture that there was a group who wanted to make all believers obey the Jewish law. And they were known as Judaizers or the Circumcision Party. Um, party is in the, in the political sense, political party, rather than a, hey, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> That'd be an odd party to join, wouldn't it? I mean... Just think about it. So, I mean, I know we've got some political parties in this nation with some mixed reputations, but imagine trying to be on the PR board for the circumcision party. What would be their slogan? The end justifies the means, is the one I could come up with. <laughs> Join now, 10% off. Ah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Joe, circumcision. It's a tricky subject to tackle. Um, uh, 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 thank you, thank you. Thanks, thanks, sir. So, what's the background to verse 3? There was a, a group of people that were attempting to encourage circumcision as a sign of obeying the Jewish law. 
And so Paul says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. The implication here being that there were plenty of people who were trying to compel Titus to be circumcised. And the reason that Paul puts this very clearly is so he makes clear, no, this did not happen, it was not true, it was not necessary. He opposed it very strongly, as probably did Titus. Okay? You've got to think... Remember, Paul is replying to a false gospel where people would try and make converts obey the Jewish law. And why, is circumc- why was circumcision a big deal? Why, why was this such an important issue at the time? Why was the absence of a foreskin deemed so key in this whole debate? Because okay. let's face it, reading it now in a... 21st century, predominantly uh, non-Jewish community, this seems an odd issue to draw a theological boundary around, does it not? For half the population, it's a fairly meaningless debate anyway. Um, And then for the rest of us, thinking, why why this? Why Why is Paul talking about this? It's an odd thing, isn't it? Have you ever tried teaching it in Sunday school? Oh, did that not come up in your World Changes lessons? I've had to explain it to my kids, thanks to the Good News Bible. So we got Zoe. My, Zoe, my daughter, she's eight. Got her a Good News Bible. She started reading this. Oh, this is great. And, you know, she'd had other kind of Bibles, predominantly picture-based before. I thought, oh, good one to move on to. Good News Bible without realising quite how frank and open even the Good News Bible is about certain things. So Zoe comes up to me and says, Daddy, what does this word mean? Circumcision. I'm like, okay, we're going to have to have that chat now. So I explained that to Zoe, and Zoe thought this was hilarious. (laughs) And then Zoe went off to tell Sam. (laughs) And and Sam just went very quiet and walked away. (laughs) Good news Bible. I would recommend, like, you know, all kinds of chats we've been having since we've got that for Zoe. Comes up, what does this word mean? Intercourse. All right, we're having that chat now, are we? Okay. And so we did. Because, actually, that's part of our responsibility as parents, is to be having those chats in a simple, you know, age-appropriate but meaningful way and acknowledging that the Bible talks about this stuff, especially with sex. I think it's great that the first time that that topic is particularly raised is as a result of a child reading scripture. That's cool, isn't it? That's better than waiting, oh, let's just hope that school sorts this out. Or, you know, they'll talk about it in the playground. No, we need to be open, right? Talking, God made sex between man and woman in marriage. This is a wonderful thing. You need to set it in that context first so that people do not think that this is something shameful or just to be embarrassed about. So anyway, those of you with younger kids, get a good news Bible, let them read Genesis, see what topics come up. See So why is it so important? Well, speaking of Genesis, so Genesis 17 is typically the passage, or one of the passages, uh, that the circumcision group would have been referring to. 
It says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. So throughout the generations, this was intending to be an ongoing, lasting thing. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So to the Jewish people at the time, and indeed today, this was more than just a ritual or a sign of belonging to a particular people group. This was a sign of a covenant established between them and God. And there was... It would have been Jewish converts among them whose background would have been genuinely believing that this was key to acceptance with God. And this was important to them because God had previously told them that this was a crucial aspect of his promise to them. So although I joked about this, it's never to um, mock customs of other faiths. That's, that's never where we go with this. And to acknowledge the importance of that within the Jewish heritage and the Jewish scripture. Do believe, um, I think I've said before, that you can take things seriously without talking about them seriously. And that tends to be how I roll and how I go with that. But when the subject of circumcision, um, it's, it was symbolic of being under the law. And it was just that God had then made further revelation through Jesus Christ that superseded the old covenant. So why was Paul so opposed to this? Couldn't he have just let it slide? You know, because you know, this is something, you know, why, why have such a, a, kind of a vigorous debate about this? Why not just say, yeah, okay, look, that's okay if you guys are saying that, as long as you're accepting that the you know, salvation is by faith. Because by accepting that you had to be circumcised, you're accepting that you were still under the law, and that there were certain things that you had to do to make yourselves right with God, rather than relying purely on his grace. Once you let that sign of thinking in, that undermines the gospel. And possibly the people might have put, tried to put it across quite subtly. Because some of the, uh, the, the greatest lies have, have a grain of truth in them. Of saying, um, well, they, you know, the circumcision group could have been saying, yeah, yeah, salvation is still just by faith. This is just the sign of it. This is just what you need to show that you have been saved. You could be saved by faith, just, just, just have this instead. You know, it's, just, it's just external recognition, but that is the problem. Because the order of things really, really matters. Because the theory that the circumcision group would have been trying to put across is, I have faith in Christ and I obey God, so I am righteous. Whereas the truth is, I have faith in Christ who makes me righteous and out of that I obey him in the freedom that I now have in him. The order of these things matters. Even if people try to say, look, we're all aiming for the same thing. Faith is good and obedience is good. What does it matter what the order is? It matters absolutely. This is so crucial because if you get these the wrong way around, you do not have grace and you do not have the true gospel. Where any model of salvation that is grace plus something, as we talked about earlier. Justification comes only by grace. To revert to circumcision is to seek advantage with God by works of law. And if I place myself you know, under the law, I've nullified grace. And Paul talks about this in Romans 2. Romans 2 verse 29 
when he says, talks about the circumcision of the heart, which obviously makes no sense physically. That much I do remember from my medical school anatomy lessons. Right? But the point he's making is that you are no longer defined by a physical reality or by human practice or by human observance. That there is nothing external that defines your relationship with Christ. That you are now defined by a spiritual reality and an internal transformation. And you don't need any outward sign or human conformity to validate your salvation. There's only one person that gets to tell you if you're a child of God. And that's God. There is no human rule or regulation. There is nothing that you have to do that people can look at and go, ah, he or she has done this. They are now a child of God. No, that's been done away with. And you can't allow that to get creeped back in. Because we live by the Spirit, and it is an internal transformation that takes place. That's why Paul talks about Romans 8, verse 16. He said, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. It is only by the internal action, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that testifies that you are God's child, that you are God's son or daughter. And no one else gets a say in that. No one at all. There is no rule or regulation or practice or ritual that anyone can put on top of that that gets any say as to whether you are a child of God. It is purely by faith in Jesus and by the Holy Spirit testifying that you are his child. And that was the gospel that Paul was preaching. You've got to also think on a purely practical note uh, that the lack of circumcision would have helped with Paul preaching this around the Gentile world. If you look at reasons, why would a first century man convert to Christianity? Well, I've put some reasons up there. Yes, you have the old eternal salvation. That's good news. But now also, you get to eat bacon and you don't need to be circumcised. That's great news. (laughs) That's the gospel. (laughs) That's paraphrased. That's like the passion version. uh, Like, you know. Eternal salvation, bacon, and no circumcision. It's in the Passion Translation somewhere. Um, And the next couple of verses show us why this became such an issue. It says, This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You might think, you know, Paul, you're sounding a bit paranoid here. People infiltrating the ranks to spy on you. Right, isn't that, is that, that not a bit melodramatic? Or no, because wherever you have something genuine and valuable, you have imitations of that, and you have people curious about that. If it's worthless, people don't tend to pay much attention to it. All right, you get very few counterfeit one-penny coins, because it's not worth people's bother. Where there is freedom, there is joy. It attracts people and it makes people curious. And then not everyone enters that environment well. Some carry a lot of baggage from their past and some might come with some harmful intentions. One of the hallmarks of the religious spirit is that you resent other people's freedom and you want to make them just as rule-bound and miserable as you are. And if you think I'm being overly harsh about this... Right? 
uh, have you heard what Jesus had to say? Matthew 23, when he's talking to the Pharisees about how they made disciples. Because the Pharisees, these were like your premier legalists. These were your top-level, works-orientated, righteous people. All right? These were the creme de la creme of religious bigots. You know, these were fantastic. And, and Jesus said to them, you go out of your way to make a disciple, and you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. Seems stern? Because that's what legalism introduces, because it's not the gospel, because that's where it comes from, that rule-bound, miserable, self-righteous, achieving lie. Because legalism only really ever achieves one of two things. Okay? First off, it, achieves, it gives people a pride and a self-righteousness when they think that they are keeping the rules and that they are doing it and that they are superior to other people. And so that they've earned their place at the table, they've earned their way into God's good books. So that's the first fruit of legalism is pride. And then the second fruit is condemnation and misery when you realize you haven't managed it because no one can. And those are the fruits of it. And that's why Paul is resisting this so fiercely. And this can still happen, happen today, where people can come with a legalistic background. And our approach to that needs to not be the, oh, look around, who's the false believer, who's the legalist that we need to resist and oppose? Well, that's not healthy. All right? You don't want to uh, try and instigate a culture of freedom by just relying on suspicion. That, that doesn't tend to work. Hence... No, it's by actually all of us being so filled with the grace of God and being so secure in our identity in Christ that everything else just bounces off. If you've got the goodness of God and the truth of God and the grace of God flowing out of you, that bounce, bad, bad stuff, that just can't get in. And so that's the answer for us as a church, is to be preserving this truth of the gospel and we're doing it together. It has to be corporate. We talked about mutual submission earlier. That's it. This culture of freedom, we talk, who protects it? Well, we do, all of us. Exactly just that. By celebrating all that God has done us and by being secure, knowing our identity and flowing in grace. It cannot rely on a top-down model where just the directors patrol the halls of Eastgate listening out for legalism. It doesn't work. As I say, you can't have a culture of freedom by tightly controlling it. We can't do that. No, this has to be something that's so embedded within our culture that whenever anything comes in, you know, and this should be anyone within Eastgate, that legalism or misery comes in and we just go, no, we're not having that. And that should be all of us. Because we should be so, so just rooted in the presence of God, in his goodness and his grace, and so secure. Now, my identity is in Jesus, and there is nothing else that gets any say in that. But anything that tries to come in, infiltrate, and bring some miserable legalism in, just bounces off the surface, and it goes. And when people come into the environment who might have a legalistic mindset, in the vast majority of cases, the, 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 uh, the way that we engage with that is not say, all oh, right, we'll you know, boot you out or start punching you. It's saying, no, how can we help you to be free? 
because that's loving and that's merciful. Now, you have to help people to be free whilst simultaneously making sure that any, uh, any legalism that they've brought in doesn't brush off on the rest of the environment. But ultimately, we're out there. We're there to send a message of freedom to the world and freedom from rules, regulation, freedom from guilt and shame and free to be all that we are in Jesus Christ. And this is, this is the truth of the gospel. This is not just something that is additional to the gospel. Freedom is not something that Eastgate has just tacked on. I know we talk about freedom a lot at Eastgate, but this is not unique to us. It's not like we've said, right, we've got the gospel of grace, and as well as that, we quite like this freedom thing, so we're going to stick that on the end. No, freedom is integral to the gospel. Okay? Freedom in Christ is the good news. That's what we preach. Slavery to rules and regulations is not good news. It's why people don't want that. Okay? It's why some people mistakenly think that they don't want Christianity because they have had a false impression given to them before that makes them feel, oh, I'm going to be burdened down with things. And part of our joyful, wonderful mission is to be able to go out and break that false message and be able to proclaim the goodness of God and the freedom of God to the world so that this is what we can bring out into our community. And this has to be the whole body. Just share one, one encouragement about that. It's how you, know, how you know when the whole body has, has got this, around the message of grace. So some of you might know I'm involved with the youth team. I, I serve on that team uh, and been doing that for a while, for years. And we recently had the kind of start of new term come up and ask the youth, what do you expect from youth this year? And a couple of the sixth formers who have been around, they said two things, two things that they expected. They said, one, we expect some silly games with vegetables. And they said, two, we expect Dave to talk about grace again. <laughs> because they've used to that. And they, that's now an expectation. Because every year, for those guys, they're in sick form. Six or seven years now, every year, we've talked about grace. To the point where I think they can now give my talk, which is great. Because that's how it should be. Because that's now ingrained. So now our youth group have that. They know that any legalistic rubbish that comes that way, they're like, no, I'm saved by grace. And that's how you know you've got a healthy community. Okay. So it's our job together to, project, to protect culture of freedom and to welcome others into the freedom that Jesus Christ paid for. And we welcome them in by grace and by grace alone. Let's stand, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we rejoice in your achievements we celebrate, we boast in you and you alone, Lord Jesus. We boast not in our own righteousness nor our own achievements, but we boast in you, Lord Jesus, and we rejoice that you have set us wonderfully and abundantly free and that now we stand in your grace, that we are completely righteous in your sight. There is no accusation that can ever be thrown against us, that we rest in your endless, wonderful grace. Thank you for that unconditional love that you pour out. Thank you for the truth of the gospel that we protect and that we declare to the world that there is freedom in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we say, we submit to you, you alone, to your grace. We thank you that you get the final, the absolute say. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'll fill us, give us more and ever-increasing depth of knowledge of you, your grace and your love. Thank you, Jesus, that you have set us free.
Amen. Bless you guys.